KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Donald Trump is responsible for about 100,000 unnecessary deaths from COVID during his presidency, according to scientists at The Lancet. John Nichols will explain who in his administration made which of the deadly decisions and who made money off the pandemic. His new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, and it's our featured thank you gift in the KPFK Fund Drive this week. Also, Haiti. This week, Haiti should be inaugurating a new president. They've done it every five years on February 7th, ever since baby Doc Duvalier fled the island 37 years ago. But not this year. Amy Willens will explain why Haiti can't get the new beginning it needs later in the show. But first... The progressive agenda in Congress. What's left of it, including proposals to make tech work for everybody? For that, we turn to Ro Khanna. He represents Silicon Valley in Congress, where he's a prominent figure in the Progressive Caucus. He was a co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. He's taught economics at Stanford. He served in the Obama administration, and he's represented tech companies and startups in private practice. His new book is Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Ro Khanna, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, before we talk about your new book, I wanted to ask briefly about our political situation right now. Uh, We're all feeling discouraged and anxious about the midterms in, what, nine or ten months. Is the Democratic majority in the House doomed in the midterms? What would it take to turn things around? No, it's not doomed. It's at risk. But we will have a lot of pickup opportunities. The maps in New York and California uh, look good for us. Uh, we also have a lot of great candidates who've won now two election cycles, many in 2018 and 2020. Two things are the key. First, we do have to get a few more of the president's priorities passed, some compromised version uh, of Build Back Better. Uh, I hope we make some progress on voting rights, at least not overturning uh, the election. And second, we need to talk about all that we've done. I mean, first time ever we've met, had this massive investment in infrastructure. We're going to pass the Innovation and Competition Act, which I helped uh, author the Endless Frontiers part in the House, biggest science and technology investment uh, since the Kennedy days. Uh, it, it will facilitate things like Intel creating 3,000 manufacturing jobs in Ohio. And then, of course, the American Rescue Plan and the Child Tax Credit. So much to talk about that we have to do a better job getting out. Well, let's talk just for a minute about the failure of voting rights in the Senate, which seems especially ominous. Is there any way forward at this point to stop Republicans from making it harder to vote? Yes, there is. And that is to get 60 votes on a narrower version of voting rights. That would include the very basic thing that Klobuchar is working on, which is to make sure that states can override the popular vote in that state. All states have laws on the books saying that the state legislature should abide by the popular vote in the state. Uh, But Trump obviously tried to overturn that. At least that will be harder to do if this reform passes. And then take some of the most essential parts of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's things like you should have the same amount of ballot boxes in heavily African-American areas. You shouldn't be able to kick people off the rolls. You shouldn't be able to bully local election officials. 
and try to get that in a bill that passes with 60 votes. That's our best chance. So you talked about uh, Build Back Better. The bill that passed in the House, of course, was changed significantly in the Senate to meet the demands of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Now it's coming back to the House. What for you has to be in that bill? And do you see problem areas for you and the other progressives? Well, I don't want to put red lines because what we need to do is pass it. I mean, given that there is some risk in 2022, it would be catastrophic if we don't do anything on climate. So to me, the bill should be centered on climate, the four to $500 billion of investment that would make a massive difference. And then it should have some of the basic other social investments that Senator Manchin has been for. A free uh, preschool for every three and four-year-old in America, some basic childcare, expansion of Medicare. I believe we can get a new version of the bill around those principles uh, that would get the support into the president's desk. We have to say yes to it. Is it the bill I would have written? No. Is it the bill the Progressive Caucus would have written? No. Uh, is it infinitely better uh, than nothing? Absolutely. You mentioned the bill you introduced in the House, the Endless Frontiers Act, to create high-tech hubs around the country, research centers that would lead to manufacturing of semiconductors and other critical high-tech supplies here at home in America and not just in California. That's one of the themes of your new book, Dignity in a Digital Age. Progressives love this bill. But in the Senate, it got turned into something sort of different. Now, as you say, it's called the Innovation and Competition Act. It's a tech bill with a lot of military spending and a lot of bipartisan support. Progressive organizations and peace groups are uneasy with it because it seems too aggressive towards uh, a new Cold War, especially with China. It's a very significant bill, as you've said. It's coming back to the House now. Where do you stand on what the Senate did with your Endless Frontiers bill? Overall, I support the Innovation and Competition Act. It would be the largest investment since the Kennedy days in science and technology. And at its core, it's Intel creating 3,000 manufacturing jobs in Ohio, uh, and 7,000 construction jobs. These aren't software engineers at Google. This is uh, advanced manufacturing. This is in the heartland. And we need to do that in the South. We need to do that in African-American, Latino uh, communities. But you are right that there are some provisions that were added uh, that are unnecessary. A language, in my view, that is overly restrictive of even cultural exchange or cooperation with countries like China on climate or scientific research that would advance human knowledge. Uh, we don't want to replicate a Cold War with China while we want to continue to expand our lead and make sure America leads technologically. And so the House version uh, hopefully uh, addresses some of the worst elements uh, of that language and uh, will pass and then in conference can be reconciled. Overall, though, I may yes vote on the bill. Your district is home to Apple, the world's most valuable public company. Last week, they announced a 20% jump in profits in their most recent quarter. They made $35 billion in profits in three months. I think that's more than the entire state economy of West Virginia. <laughs> Apple recently reached $3 trillion in market value. It's fallen back a little bit recently. It seems like Apple 
shows pretty clearly that too much wealth is concentrated in too few hands, especially in your district. Yes, and that's uh, in some sense the thesis of the book. I mean, the market cap of companies in my district and the surrounding area is $11 trillion, 40% increase over the last two years. This is the most wealth generation probably anywhere in human history. And yet so many people are excluded from the opportunities of the modern economy. They've experienced deindustrialization. They've experienced jobs going offshore. They have their kids buying one-way tickets out of their hometowns. And a large part of the argument of the book is that we have to decentralize the opportunities of the modern economy so that you can stay in your hometown and have a chance at a one of these 25 million digital jobs or at a potential uh, prosperous uh, occupation in, in a digital economy. The political possibilities here, is it possible that addressing unequal access to technology, spreading the jobs and the skills and the wealth the way you propose, is it possible that all that might change things for Trump's base so that they would be less responsive to his angry and bitter message? Of course, he did succeed in getting elected by manipulating the you know, the legitimate anxieties about job losses and deindustrialization in the Rust Belt. Do you have hopes that you might be able to change the feelings and the votes of some of the Trump base? The hope is to be able to reduce some of the bitterness and some of the divisiveness in this country, recognizing, though, that economic empowerment is only part of the issue and that there are deeper issues with becoming a multiracial, multicultural democracy. But the reality is that for many people in this country, the modern economy has not worked. Too many jobs have gone offshore. There has been deindustrialization. While my district is thriving, uh, that has meant in some places empty storefronts. And we have to have an aspirational vision for places left out. It can't just be that uh, we, Zuckerberg and others make all the money and that they send everyone else a check. I'm for taxing the billionaires more, but places like Cleveland, they used to be the Silicon Valley of their time. They have pride. They want to participate in modern wealth generation. And part of my message is if we can bring a new modern prosperity to these communities, their ability to participate without cultural displacement, the promise of new jobs without uh, them having to fundamentally change their way of life, uh, then Maybe that helps ease some of the divisiveness, ease some of the bitterness, and also has people working in rural communities with African-American communities and the coast. The Intel example in Ohio being a prime example of what we may be able to do across the country. You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg. Let's talk about uh, Facebook, one of the subjects of your book, Dignity in the Digital Age. You know, Facebook a lot of us think has done a lot of damage in the last few years. What do you see as the biggest problems with Facebook and, and what can we do about them? One of the biggest problems is the incitement of violence. I mean, how can it be that a few days before January 6th, private security at Facebook goes to Zuckerberg and says, you have people talking about specific acts of violence with specific times, specific places. They're going to assassinate potentially lawmakers and Zuckerberg decides to sit on the information. Uh, even under the Supreme Court Brandenburg test, you shouldn't be allowed to allow the incitement of violence on your platforms. There needs to be a law uh, requiring disclosure of that and removal of that. And then there has to be broader laws uh, that uh, deal with this algorithmic amplification where they take people's data 
and then prey on the most vulnerable, uh, they were responsible in part for the rise of QAnon, pushing that type of nonsense uh, into people's social media feeds. So uh, it calls for both uh, legal reform, but also then the hope for some ethics to emerge in social media sites. One last thing. Your family is from India. You are Hindus. You write in Dignity in a Digital Age that you were once told that a Hindu could never be elected to Congress in America, but that you could have a brilliant career as a congressional staffer. What's it been like for you as a Hindu in American politics? Well, it has been a very interesting uh, challenge. On the one hand, uh, it hasn't been nearly the, the barrier that I would have imagined growing up, uh, that uh, there is now an openness to a more multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, and people respect other people of faith and, and talking about that faith. Uh, on the other hand, candidly, the biggest challenge has been some of the politics of uh, the subcontinent, because I describe myself as a, a Gandhian Hindu, and that means a, a Hindu who believes deeply in pluralism, who disdains caste and caste politics, who believes that whether you're a Sikh or Muslim or Christian, you should have equal status, not just in the United States, but even in India. And there have been extreme elements uh, in the uh, Indian American community who haven't liked my pluralistic conception of Hinduism derived and influenced by Gandhi. And actually that, that has been one of my biggest challenges uh, in politics. And there's also been a certain amount of hostility towards India for taking tech jobs from Americans. Has any of this washed over onto you? Well, who knows what motivates a person's politics deep down, but I wonder if part of what motivates my deep desire to bring technology jobs, to bring opportunities to places like where I grew up, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, to go around the country and say that rural America and black and brown communities can participate in this, is an awareness of uh, a sense of drift in these jobs having been offshored uh, to India and Eastern Europe and other places. And uh, part of my vision is, well, if these jobs can be done in rural communities in India, why aren't those jobs in the heart of our country? What is preventing us from doing that? And couldn't we develop that opportunity here uh, so that there is less of a sense uh, that globalization means job loss and, and reduction of opportunity. So I'm sure being Indian American, uh, in some sense, has inspired my work. The book is Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Rokana, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. In Haiti, Inauguration Day for the new president comes every five years during the first week of February, except for glitches, coups, and postponements. This has been the case for more than three decades, but not this year. 
For an explanation, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's the author of the award-winning books, The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier, and Farewell Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti, among other books. She was Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The New Yorker. She writes for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The LA Times, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine, and she was a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Leftists around the world care about Haiti, not just because it's a desperately poor country, but because Haiti had the first slave revolution starting in the 1790s. It was the largest slave uprising since Spartacus. It started as part of the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. And Haiti has been punished by France and the United States pretty much ever since. That's why we care about Haiti. Let's start with the historic promise of democracy in modern Haiti, which you date to February 7th, 1986. That's right. And February 7th is the traditional inauguration day. Um, and what happened on that day was that um, after weeks and even months of popular uprisings around the country, not just in the capital, uh, the United States was moved to abandon finally and completely the Duvalier uh, dynasty, um, the 29-year dynasty of Francois Papadoc Duvalier, president for life, and his son, Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, president for life. For Babydoc Duvalier, president for life was a misnomer. And on February 7th, 1986, he flew out of the country with wife, kids, mom in tow, drove his silver BMW into a C-141 U.S. cargo plane and fled to, uh, to France. So what was supposed to happen this year on February 7th? Well, as every year, except for many years, a new president would be uh, inaugurated after an electoral campaign and an election. But because uh, President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated on July 7th, of this past summer, and then replaced by a de facto prime minister who was unelected, extra constitutional, et cetera, uh, but backed by the United States of America. There was no election held. The new um, prime minister, de facto, uh, Ariel Henry, did not see a way to hold an election, although he promised elections as soon as possible with more than 100 gangs running the country, essentially running the country, holding the means of violence and uh, kidnapping and assassinating at will. First of all, where do we stand right now on the search for the assassins? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, uh, about 40 Colombian mercenaries, apparently whose presence had not been noted yet by the forces of order, the police of Haiti or the government of Haiti or anyone, um, were arrested almost immediately. They had no exit plan. They didn't really seem to be involved completely in the assassination since they had no way of getting out. Um, and then there were a series of arrests and um, revelations culminating most recently in um, a big New York Times piece in which one of the suspects in the assassination, who was at the time on the lam, revealed to the New York Times in a parking lot in an unnamed country that the de facto prime minister at this moment, supported by the U.S. government, was 
possibly an accomplice in the assassination and was in touch with the main suspect in the assassination, still a person still unarrested uh, somewhere in the world. So there is a kind of sword of Damocles hanging over this de facto prime minister. And the de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, as you said, <clears throat> said he wants to take the country to elections as soon as possible. But you say the Haiti he rules is no country for elections. No, it really is no country for elections right now. I mean, one of the saddest things was, if my listeners remember, when they uh, when the U.S. Um, deported maybe thousands of Haitians uh, to a country where they were not deporting anyone because it was so irregular and dangerous that they had told the temporary protected status people in the United States that they had to remain, well, that they could remain because the U.S. could not according to its human rights standards, send them back to Haiti. But it deported all these other people back to Haiti. In fact, Haitians who hadn't lived in Haiti in maybe five or 10 years and who were just trying to get into the U.S. because they thought the Biden administration would be friendlier to them than the Trump administration. Instead, they were deported and they couldn't get from the point of arrival in Haiti to wherever it was they were hoping they were going to land in Haiti to you know, live because the roads are too dangerous. They can't get through. The gangs are too dangerous. The gangs will see them. The gangs will know that the U.S. gave each one of them $10 and they'll be kidnapped or just shot in a robbery. Um, equally, uh, oil uh, deliveries to Haiti were stopped twice in recent months by the gangs and the gangs control the road into the capital. So effectively, they stopped the country from running, no doubt, you know, holding someone sort of... Uh, hostage through this um, stopping of the oil. They can stop anything. They hijack cars going to hospitals. They assassinate nurses. You can't go voting in that country. You'll just be uh, shut up. So no one will vote in an election. And in fact, it's been, I don't even see that Ariel Henry has tried to reach elections. And I don't know that he could if he tried because Haitians don't believe in him, they don't trust him. And now they think that he was a party to the assassination of Jovenel Moïse. Much as they didn't like Jovenel Moïse, that's not acceptable. So without elections, how is the battle for control of Haiti being fought? Well, I mean, I've talked about these people before, and I will talk about them again until the United States moves to abandon Ariel Henry and let this movement go forward. And that's a movement of, it's called the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis, a very unwieldy name. It's known mostly by the name of the accord it signed with all of its many various members who represent, I would say, several thousand Haitian people. Um, it's called the Montana Accord that they signed because it's named after the Hotel Montana in Haiti. So the, the commission is a, an umbrella group, a consensus group, sort of pushed by the United States to accept um, even less progressive people than they might want to originally have accepted under their umbrella, but they've done it. And they have a plan, a written out plan for moving forward and they started before the assassination, months before the assassination of Jovenel, because Jovenel also was someone who it was accept, unacceptable to go forward to elections with because you couldn't trust the election, who would come out and vote, 
It's the same situation it is now. It's not a manageable situation. The people who are running the country were criminals under Jovenel, and they're still criminals under Ariel Henry. And uh, the commission is sitting there with all these plans. They just elected, you know, selected, you could say. They had 40 members uh, in the commission who were chosen to go forward and vote uh, among several candidates for uh, an interim president and an interim prime minister to lead the country to elections. And they elected them. They're perfectly respectable, unsullied persons. And the commission is largely made of unsullied, respectable people who actually might care about Haiti. I mean, there may be deals going on under the table. I don't know. But this is something that is an alternative and it's not a horrible alternative. The United States somehow gets to decide who rules Haiti. It seems like the United States, at least right now, continues to support Ariel Henry rather than the plans of the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. They chose Ariel, actually, Dr. Henry, I should call him. They chose him over the person who had been prime minister when Jovenel was shot. It's complicated, but let's just simplify it by saying there was one person who had been fired by Jovenel. And then there was Ariel Henry, who had been appointed by uh, Jovenel. But then Jovenel was killed before Ariel Henry took office. So there was the other guy who he had fired was still in office. And the United States said, no, we're taking Ariel Henry. And since that moment, when they made Ariel Henry de facto and, and announced it through their embassy and the embassies of what is called the core group friends, or you might call them enemies of Haiti, um, <laughs> Ariel has been the de facto prime minister. And there he is. But I think the reason they stick with Ariel Henry is he was there at the time of the assassination, ready to take office. Then he took office, they supported him. And he's one guy, they can manage one guy. One guy, they can tell him what to do. They can stop him from doing what they don't want him to do. They can order him to make a consensus government, but that won't really be consensus because they don't like that. And with the um, commission, it's a huge umbrella group of actual Haitians representing the actual Haitian people. It's a democratic institution. They don't like democracy, especially <laughs> when it's a democracy that's going to be voted in by a uh, population they don't trust. And you tell me why they don't trust the democratic will of the Haitian people, because black lives don't matter to the U.S. government. And they don't, they never trusted them when they voted in Aristide, who was voted in in the only free and fair election in 1989, the, the U.S. couldn't stand it and had to, you know, green light a coup against him. They, they had two coups against him. <laughs> it's astonishing. And this time, I think they're afraid of the progressive nature of the commission, which is not allied with Aristide. The commission does have some support in Congress. There is a Haiti caucus in the House. It's not huge. It's founded and chaired by congressmen from Michigan named Andy Levin. Most of the members are black and they support the commission for a Haitian solution. What do you know about the Haiti caucus in the House? They've been very good and they've been really pro-democratic. You know, that could always change, I guess. But they seem to be really great. Andy Levin, and I really like him. He says the right things about Haiti, according to me. Um, he's been against Ariel Henry for a long time. We don't understand why Henry is staying in power, why he wants to be even in power. But I'm sure there are many 
good reasons to be in power in Haiti. And the rest of the caucus seems to, you know, get together and and support the right things. But how much power they have, I don't know. The Black Caucus has has supported them and the Caribbean Caucus in the Congress equally. So we'll see. But, you know, they send letters to Blinken and Biden and nobody seems to pay much attention to their point of view. One reason for Ariel Henry to stay in power is as prime minister, de facto or not, he seems to have some kind of executive privilege and not to be prosecutable. That would be a reason to stay in power. But but if the evidence does show that Ariel Henry was part of the assassination plot, the United States will have to turn elsewhere. And do you have any idea what plan B for Biden and Blinken is? I think plan B may maybe plan 1A, like there's Ariel Henry and then there's the commission. I don't see um, a third way for the administration. So, and I know that they've been talking to the commission, the U.S. representatives, not congressmen, but representatives from the U.S. government and others who are uh, confidants of the U.S. government in Haiti. And and they, they, I know that the U.S. pushed them to sign uh, sign on some former senators that they really didn't maybe have that much interest in having on board, but now they're on board too. And that's, I think it's good, even if those guys I don't really trust completely, I think it's good to cover a swath of, of the p- political class too. But I don't know that the Americans feel comfortable. It might explode in their face. Whereas, as I said, you know, one guy you can pretty well control, but it's going to be embarrassing if while they're controlling him and supporting him, he's then charged in the assassination. But they may be able, I regret to say this, but they may be able to control that too. And there's one other potential force here. The Haitian people, they seem powerless victims of all this right now, but does it have to be that way? Well, let's go back to the original February 7th. On that February 7th, without the, um, there's a word in French, debout, that's when you stand up, um, without them rising to protest against Duvalier, uh, you know, it could be that little Nicolas Duvalier, who is grandbaby doc, might be in power right now. In fact, he may rise to power at some point. He's in Haiti right now. But, you know, without the protests, Duvalier would have stayed for longer. So, but it depends whether the commission has the popular will behind it. It's it's hard to rise up when you're in poverty and frightened of the gangs and you don't want to come out. You have to rise up en masse. And we're waiting to see if that might happen, but it might not happen. And when I say we, I don't mean me. <laughs> but one is waiting to see what will happen there. You know, um, the poverty is so intense and so obdurate and so immovable and awful right now in Haiti. And, you know, there's no electricity. You can't send your kids to school when you think it's time for them to be in school. You just can't do it. it it's, it's really awful. Plus, there's a, an illegitimate government in power. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think after looking at the options, which are not, you know, myriad, Um, The United States is eventually, and I hope sooner rather than later, like before the midterms, 
I hope they're going to, and I believe they will switch parties and, and support the commission. I believe that there are a lot of negotiations going on. I don't know that for a fact, but I, I sense. And I think they'll do the right thing because the right thing will finally appear to them to be the only thing to do. Amy Willens, she wrote about Haiti most recently for the LA Times. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. How many people died because of the Trump administration's failed response to the coronavirus pandemic? Who exactly is responsible and for which decisions? And who made money off the crisis? John Nichols has the answers. Of course, he's Washington correspondent for The Nation and the author of many books, including The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. His new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, and it's exactly what we need right now. John, welcome back. An honor to be with you, John. Well, basic facts. How many people do we estimate died in the United States because Trump did not take the same steps as the other G7 countries? Well, you and I aren't going to do the estimate, John. We'll, we'll turn to Lancet, the uh, British Medical Journal. Yeah. And uh, they did they convened a commission to, to look at these issues. And they were looking more broadly at, at healthcare in the United States and the way that governmental decisions may impact death rates and, and disease issues. They came to a number, 40%, in the period from when COVID hit. And remember, it, it, it really hit hard in March of 2020. Yeah. Uh, into the end of 2020 and when Trump's presidency uh, was coming to a conclusion, that would mean that you're looking at over 100,000 that were not necessary. People died because the president lied to them, made bad choices, put the wrong people in charge of things. Well, of course, the number one coronavirus criminal is Trump. You say he lied about the seriousness of the virus at the outset. He peddled conspiracy theories about it, and he mismanaged the response. I'd like to focus on the response part. Uh, instead of saying hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment for COVID and would become, quote, one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine, what could he have done? What should he have done? He could have done what every other country, I shouldn't say every other country, but most other countries were doing. That was to move the scientists up front. In writing the book, I talked to uh, not just Americans, but people around the world, including some leaders of other countries. During the course of the pandemic, I interviewed uh, Katrine Jakob's daughter, who is the prime minister of Iceland. Iceland, like a number of countries led by women, uh, did very, very well in handling the early stages of the pandemic. And one of the things that uh, Katrine Jakob's daughter talked about uh, as, as a reason why Iceland did so well was that she didn't put herself up front. She put the scientists up front. She put the doctors up front. And she said in one interview, uh, because you want to make sure that the information that was coming was understood and trusted. And that's actually the, the key to what Trump did wrong. Your number two on your list of coronavirus criminals is uh, 
Mike Pence. Mike Pence, his stock is up right now with our friends because, of course, he's the hero of January 6th when Congress met to certify the Electoral College vote. Pence refused Trump's demand that he declare Trump the winner. And, of course, the mob that stormed the Capitol that day was chanting, hang Mike Pence. But you remind us that Pence was not the hero of the pandemic response. Absolutely not. In fact, would that he had at key stages during the pandemic have stood up. Remember, he was in charge of at one point, you know, Trump put all sorts of different people in charge of dealing with the pandemic at different times, including Jared Kushner. But at, at, at one point, Mike Pence was sort of the man. He was the one who, I think, in fairness, could have stood up. He was in a position to say, uh, Mr. President, that's wrong. Now, of course, it's politically risky. I, I understand that. But at a point where you're looking at the, the prospect of hundreds of thousands of deaths, of unnecessary deaths, and a spread of disease and all the economic challenges that went there, uh, A, there's a good argument that, that Pence could have uh, argued behind closed doors for a better response. And there's very little evidence that he did. His commission that he they headed, the, the oversight agents grouping that he headed, rarely met. But then when you got to critical stages, he went out and did a cheerleading for uh, Trump's response. He wrote a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed in which he, the second wave of the pandemic was coming. He says, oh, this isn't a second wave. You know, pay no attention to this. Maybe this is unfair to Pence, but I think people just expected him to be a little bit better than Trump. In the early days of the pandemic, the most urgent need was for protective gear for frontline health workers, especially the, the nurses in the hospitals who were surrounded by dying uh, patients, to organize the supply of PPE, Trump appointed Jared Kushner. What, what, remind us, what was his background in public health and medical logistics? Well, I assume he had a doctor. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but aside from that, it was, it was non-existent. And, um, you know, look, Donald Trump turned to Jared Kushner whenever he didn't know who to put in charge of something. Peace in the Middle you know, East was my personal favorite. Yeah, and, and it certainly worked out well. <laughs> um, and But also, I mean, he was in charge of dealing with, you know, technological progress and, you know, the automation. And he's, he named, list a hundred things. And, building and the Kushner. wall. Let's not forget. he, he Building the wall. Yeah. Another thing that didn't happen. At a certain point, Trump was getting a lot of hits for uh, this lack of protective gear. And there were pictures in the newspaper and on, on social media of nurses wearing garbage bags to protect themselves, which was just, it was madness. And this was not what, what should be happening. And governors across the country were crying out for, for help. And so, of course, Trump put Jared Kushner in charge. Jared Kushner turned to a college roommate for advice um, and uh, came up with a plan that was classic Kushner. Instead of using the power of government, and we have defense production acts and things of that nature, really using the power of government to get production up to speed in the United States. He came up with a plan to basically use U.S. resources to help multinational corporations to import uh, protective gear from other places, but without a, a, a clear signal on what they were going to do with them what they, when they got them here. And so, they, of course, what did they do? They started selling them off for a profit. And and so it was such a mess, such a disaster. 
and and the, the needed gear wasn't getting to the places where it was was supposed to go. That um, the plan was the whole project Airbridge was was scrapped very very quickly. Became the subject of multiple investigations in the in the Congress. But the the key thing to remember here, John, is that at that critical early stage, it was Jared Kushner who screwed up the supply chain. Now he wasn't the only one. I don't want to give him a hundred percent responsibility, but had he set up a more coherent and and responsible approach, uh, it would undoubtedly be benefiting us to to this day. He didn't do so, as with so many things that Jerry Kushner touched, it fell apart. Your book has 17 chapters, each for one of the people who share responsibility for the what are we going to say? A hundred thousand unnecessary deaths, well, and, and since, and, and even more since then. Even more since. Striking thing to me about your seventeen chapters is they aren't all about Republicans. There's Rahm Emanuel, uh, advisor to Democratic presidents, former Democratic mayor of Chicago. Why does he get a chapter in your book on coronavirus criminals? Because Rahm Emanuel preached a gospel of uh, free trade, un, pretty much unrestricted corporate-friendly free trade, which was terrific for crony capitalism, but lousy for the public interest. And, you know, what happened is that through successive Democratic presidencies, uh, Emmanuel promoted free trade deals that encouraged the offshoring of of U.S. production of essential gear, of of necessary medical products and of necessary uh, protective gear that that you'd want in, in, a, in a moment like this. We needed to continue to make certain basic items, basic pieces of protective gear, basic respirators, things like that in the United States, precisely because there might be a, a difficult or dangerous situation. Whereas those who had opposed him all along, people like Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, uh, very early on said, look, here's exactly where the problem is. We don't make the things that we need now to fight against this pandemic. Obviously, the Trump administration didn't respond well. But frankly, there are quite a few Democrats who, who you know, kind of couldn't break out of that old free trade mentality and did not respond well. Another person who is not a Trump supporter that's uh, featured in your book of coronavirus criminals is Jeff Bezos. Now, Jeff Bezos is actually one of Trump's most important critics. He owns the Washington Post, slogan is democracy dies in darkness, and has done a huge amount to expose the crimes of Donald Trump on on many fronts. He's usually described as the richest man in the world. Tell us about Jeff Bezos and COVID-19. Well, Jeff Bezos uh, was obviously somebody we should have invested our money with uh, at the start of COVID, uh, because he became exponentially wealthier, you know, literally added you know, tens of billions of dollars to his already incredible fortune. And and how did he do that? Well, he oversees a, a, a warehousing network and a distribution network via Amazon that uh, has, when COVID hit, became this absolutely vital tool in the overall process of getting things to people who were locked down at home. They ordered a lot of stuff. And so his warehouses became incredibly busy. In fact, right at the point where a lot of the country was locking down and people were not, they were working from home, uh, he oversaw a network of warehouses where people had to come to work. And the interesting thing about it is those people who had to come to work, uh, at least in the early stages, recognized that they were in situations where they were not protected. 
And there were people who stepped up and said, look, this isn't safe. People are getting sick. People are dying. And uh, the primary initial whistleblower ended up getting fired by Amazon. There were discussions about firing that whistleblower that went all the way up the chain to the top of Amazon, to the highest level personnel talking about how to shut down people who were raising concerns about health in the warehouses. Now, ultimately, during the course of the pandemic, Bezos did uh, what so many corporate CEOs and others did, uh, which is that they they blocked unionization of, of the place where they operate. Now, the bottom line is, again and again, in my book, unions come out as heroes because they were the ones who raised the alarm and, and raised the concern. But finally, also with Bezos, you had to look at just that, that exponential growth in his own fortune. One of the, the standout moments of the pandemic, from, a, from the standpoint of looking at it financially, was that uh, there opened up a, a discussion about who would be the first trillionaire. Because the billionaires were making so much money during the course of the pandemic, America's billionaires increased their wealth from roughly three trillion to five trillion, um, and the number of billionaires increased from uh, six hundred and fourteen to I think and I hope I got the number right. I think it's uh, seven forty-five or something like that. And that's uh, Institute for Policy Studies and Americans for Tax Fairness doing great, great research on this and charting all this. Uh, but the bottom line is that that Bezos, uh, you know, he's he is a, a placeholder, if you will, for the billionaires who came out incredibly well. And if I can emphasize one thing, John, you know, at the start of the pandemic, the big message was uh, shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. Uh, we're all going to have to give of ourselves to make sure that we can survive this. And so many Americans did that. They put masks on. They they went straight into emergency rooms. They drove buses. Uh, they you know worked in meat packing plants, and they got sick, and a lot of them died. Yeah. And at the same time, our billionaire class retreated to their waterfront villas and their country homes, flipped on their computers, and you know watched their their wealth increase. That's one of the places where there really should be a lot of accountability in the form of some very very aggressive taxation. So we've talked here mostly about 2020 and into 2021. Uh, Let's talk about the current debate right now in the Republican Party about the pandemic response. It's pretty interesting. Just in the last couple of weeks, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, has started attacking Trump for uh, his response on the virus, but attacking him from the right. It looks like one possible future for the Republican Party is that the alternative to Trump in the coming primary season will not be people who are less crazy about the pandemic, but people who are more crazy. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Let's also remember that when Donald Trump talked about getting vaccinated and boosted, uh, he got booed at his own rallies, right? So you can tell that there is a there is a, a train that, that Trump put on the track and it's now running very, very fast. And he sometimes is running to catch up with it, as are other Republicans. DeSantis is uh, kind of the worst of all players in many ways because he is a uh, he's wrongheaded in his approach. His answers are wrong. Uh, he's always against mass fan mandates. He's against vaccine mandates. Uh, he's you know he again and again undercuts the the public health response. But at the same time, he's very very authoritarian. 
And so uh, he's the opposite of a libertarian Republican. Uh, if there's some local school board that says, you know, look, we'd like to be a little safer here. Maybe we would have wear some masks and stuff. He's like, uh-uh, can't do that. And, you know, jumps in and, and takes away the authority of local government and local school boards to protect people. And so I write about him as, you know, kind of an example of one of the, the worst patterns in the Republican Party, which is... Um, authoritarian ignorance, authoritarian wrongheadedness. Lastly, what is to be done? Obviously, we need accountability, but we also need what you call transformational justice for the future, for the long term. What would that look like? Well, this is an important thing to understand, John, that accountability drives change. If you don't have accountability for those who have failed us, who have done wrong, deliberately or through malfeasance or incompetence, uh, then it is very hard to make the changes going forward because we keep saying, well, these things just happen. It's just chance. Well, the level of death and and disease and financial uh, destabilization that we saw during the early stages of the pandemic, remember, it's ongoing, uh, tell us that, that without accountability, we're likely to end up in the same place again. And so my view is that, yes, if there are criminal charges that can be brought, bring them. If there are civil charges that can be brought or civil actions that can be brought, bring them. If there's congressional action that can be taken, do it. But we should also understand that the the biggest change that we need is a societal change in which we identify those who did wrong, who failed us. And I try to do that in the book and say, they should never again be in positions of power, that this should be disqualifying politically, it should be disqualifying in the business sector. And if we act, if we have that kind of accountability, a transformational justice aligned with you know, civil, criminal, political actions, then we create a situation where those who come in the future will not have the same impunity that a Trump and those around them had. That's the thing we have to change, John. And I read a lot about it in the book because the fact is that without a transformational justice, without accountability that leads to change, I can guarantee you, through writing about a lot of history, that we will be back in this situation again. The names may be different, but the crisis will be the same. And that is leaders who are in a position of power and authority to do good, fail to do good, because they think that there will be no accountability, no uh, reckoning if they serve their own political interests and their own economic interests. John Nichols, his new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. John, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Honor to be with you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. 
Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.